0: hello and welcome to another episode of who knew in the moment the podcast i'm your host phil friedrich today i'm honored to have sean nelson sean is the founder of love sack a big takeaway that you're going to hear throughout his story is sometimes you just have to be too naive to conform to what the experienced folks say enjoy the show Hello, and welcome to another episode of Who Knew in the Moment. Uh, today, I'm honored to have Sean Nelson with me. Sean is the founder of LoveSack, and uh, today, as he goes through his story, you're going to see a lot of twists and turns and pivotal moments, and so I'm super excited to highlight those. So, Sean, thanks so much for being on.
1: Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. You betcha.
0: So I want to rewind to a day that's not unlike many other, you know, 17, 18 year olds' uh, lives, but there's a day where you're sitting on your parents' couch watching The Price is Right with a bowl of cereal, and you just have this, you know, bigger idea.
1: Yeah, I don't know that it was a very big idea. I just uh, had an idea. I thought it would be really funny to make a giant bean bag, like, you know, from me to the TV, like that big. And the carpet. And I and I got off the couch and drove down to the fabric store and bought some fabric. Um, bought uh 14 yards of black and tan vinyl and cut it out like a figure eight and sewed it up. Tried to sew it up like a baseball kind of. Yeah. And my girlfriend's mom had to help me finish it because I wasn't a very good seamstress. And uh, you know, took me three more weeks to stuff the thing, um, couldn't afford enough. Beanbag B. So ended up putting like old mattresses, you know, shredded. So I would, I would cut them up on a paper cutter, like, you know, like the camping mattresses. Yeah. Or a piece of foam with a of Cut those up with, um, into little squares and put them in. And anyway, after about three weeks of putting crap in there, uh, hauled this thing out camping, driving movies everywhere I could get it. And um, people loved it and wanted one. And I didn't, I didn't even make another one for three years, till three years after that. But that was the beginning.
0: Yes. When that was created, it was strictly for your personal use. And yeah, you kind of took it everywhere with you. And people always thought, you know, that's cool. And it's interesting. Uh, but like you said, it wasn't until a little bit later that the uh, the demand or the request came in to maybe look at a business. Yeah. Yeah. So as you're graduating, uh, you decide that one, you're going to take an opportunity to go over to Taiwan and to do some serving. So talk a little bit about the uh, the trip there.
1: Yeah, so um, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I'm a Mormon and a uh, member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, to be specific. And and when we turn 19, we can uh, volunteer to go on a mission and be a missionary. And I, I did that and was called uh, by the church to go to Taiwan. So I got to learn Mandarin Chinese and spend two years of my life doing service and spreading uh, our our religion around the country and meeting people and going into their homes. And it was just coolest experience and learned a ton about life, about people, about uh, Asian cultures and came back home when I was 21, uh, began university up at the University of Utah and started dating again, just getting into normal life in America again. Yeah. And uh, that's when I pulled the the the, it wasn't even a love sack back then just the giant beanbag out of the garage and once again everywhere I took it everybody wants one.
0: Yes. Now, as you're going to Utah, um, you end up meeting a very important person while you're in college, and that person would be Dave Underwood.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Dave. What's kind of cool, and I've thought about this a lot. When you know, I get I get the opportunity to mentor young entrepreneurs and people find me and ask for advice and that sort of thing. And, and uh, when you have no money, you just have to take what comes at you. And I had a few friends who in the beginning just helped out, just kind of, and I had other friends who wanted, you know, to own a piece of this business with me once we got started as a business. And some of those guys wouldn't show up, but, but yet some of my just friends and cousins would show up and help and help me, you know, man the show or stuff the sacks or do whatever (laughs) needed to be done and dave was one of those guys in fact he was the most loyal of all those guys and it wasn't until probably two years later after just sort of helping out quite a bit for free you know um that i was in a position where he could become part of the company and own a little piece of it and and work more for free (laughs) Uh, like I was. In fact, I was a waiter the whole time. Love Sack was growing as a side hustle while while we were both in college. Yeah. And he was working at UPS. And we both had real jobs because, you know, the, the little business never paid us anything. We just had to put it all back in. But we, we manned through it.
0: Yes. Now, as you're growing um, the business, it it takes time, but you start getting some traction, you know, a few orders there. Few orders here, and one day you guys decide to go to a trade show in Chicago. And going into this trade show, you weren't really sure how much longer the love sack business was going to continue on for.
1: Yeah, well, in fact, we took it to that trade show because I wanted to close love sack down. And everybody I I spoke to about, you know, I I wanted to go and get a real job. I was graduating from university. I had a degree. Spoke fluent Chinese. Yeah. And I wanted a real job, but everyone's like, no, you can't close Love Sacks. So I said, okay. We took it to this trade show so I could either get a huge order from some retailer or whatever, or close down knowing that I had tried. And, uh, both happened. We came back you know, <laughs> two weeks. like no one bought anything at this trade show. It was like where other businesses could look at our products and, and other retailers, big retailers and stuff and see if they you know wanted to carry them. And they laughed at it. They loved it. They jumped in it, but they like no place for this in furniture stores, no place for this in. But but two weeks later, I'm down there stuffing a love sack on this little like wood chipper thing we used in the back room of this old furniture factory. Like we did for years, just kind of like the side hustle right after school between before my waiter job and my phone rings and it's this out of state number. So I figured it was, it was might've been from the trade show. So I, you know, turn off the shredder, brush the foam out of my hair, I love sack corporation. And it's the limited too. So the so limited brands, biggest retailer in the United States. You know, yeah. you're talking Victoria's Secret, Bed, Bath and Body Works. This is their little girls' store wants twelve thousand little love sacks for Christmas. Got to be the low low price. Got to be delivered in five months. I said, no problem. We're the best not beanbag company in the world. <laughs> and uh, took the order and and uh, began hunting down for the fabric they needed and that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah. So talk about that. Um you know, that phone call for them, you know, 12,000 may or may not be a huge order, but to you guys, I mean, it really is the the pivotal and game-changing moment for the business between closing it down or progressing and seeing what it can grow to. So talk about that moment and then the actual fulfilling of 12,000 uh, 12, of
1: those. Yeah. Um, so We took this order and it had to be in a specific fabric and uh, I I had to find that. So I flew to the biggest fabric show in the country in North Carolina, um, just kind of credit carded a flight out there and wandered to this fabric show as if I knew what I was doing. (laughs) And uh, anyway, found it. And but it was it was five bucks a yard. I needed it for half that. And I'm about to give up again thinking, what am I even doing? This is a quarter million dollar order. I'm still a waiter. Yeah, about to graduate. know i I can't deal with this but uh the guy with the fabric had these sample boxes of fabric behind him in this booth and it had chinese writing on the side you know just it was the it was the address of the factory that made this fabric Mm. and i could read it right because that's what i do i've been studying. let me go there so i got on a plane i flew to shanghai china i walked in the downtown office of this fabric mill i said hey i'm sean i'm here for limited i did this in english yeah. Because I want to hold my cards. And they have always have like English speaking salespeople to deal with people like me. And and they said, Yeah, we make that. It's five bucks here. I said, No, no, I need it for cheaper. They start talking amongst themselves in Chinese in front of me, of course, yeah. about how much it costs to make this fabric. So I knew they could do it. Yeah. And I just had to sit there for like three days and negotiate it down and got it down to like half that price. And they're going to cut them and sew them and ship them to me with the limited logo on them. And I just, you know, they said, we just need a $65,000 deposit to get started. And, and for me at that time, man, that was just crazy money. Yeah. And I go back to my hotel room. I call it the limited. I said, Hey, I'm, I'm at my factory in China. I'm, I'm ready to do your order. I need a $65,000 deposit to get started on your order. And they said, well, we're the limited corporate. We don't give deposits. They said, well, we're lovesack. I don't do deals without deposits. And <laughs> they, uh, they ended up wiring me $65,000 to my University of Utah credit union account. That's all I had. Yeah. And, uh, I wired that to China and i had spent the limited money. So now I had to deliver. And so I flew back home, built a built a factory to stuff these things once they arrived on credit cards, you know, wood from home, first month's cash advance on this old decrepit warehouse. We turned into a factory. Um farm equipment to shred that foam we we ended up having to get an agricultural loan yeah. from the US government to afford a hay grinder and a tractor so we could run a tractor power is the is the cheapest way we could figure out to shred tons of foam and anyway just figured it all out and credit carded my way to you know i don't know six figures of debt 24 years old but got the factory open got the order built by September And, you know, shipped out five truckloads of little not beanbag stuff with thumbs shrunken down and and uh, was completely just broken after living in that factory, running double shifts every day of my life uh, for three months, two, three months, but finished and kind of broke even didn't even make any money. Yeah, Um, because, you know, 9-11 happened while we were in that factory, the price of foam went up, price of shipping went up and uh, we were just trying to survive.
0: What I, I love that you could yeah read the or read the language and then you could hear them speak in the negotiations even though they didn't necessarily know at that time you could oh those those are good moments now for you after that happens um, talk about the progression of the business at that point um, you know two thousand two two thousand three two thousand four.
1: Yeah, so we we scrambled, went to furniture stores. No one wanted our stuff, uh, you know, the bigger love sacks. Mm-hmm. Um, I owned this factory. I had to pay off the machinery somehow. So my cousin had the idea to open our own store. We credit carded our way into the mall business. We opened the first store in the Gateway Mall in, in Salt Lake City in the winter of 2001. And, you know, just big screen TV, music playing, come in, flop down on a giant not bean bag. Yeah. And, surprising to us it worked you know we we honestly didn't know we, we we went even deeper into debt rolling the dice and out of desperation but it worked and and we we did like 120 grand in sales the first six weeks which at that time seemed crazy to us yeah took the money out of the drawer practically drugged california opened another store um began franchising people were asking about the business it's so cool who do we talk to uh got an attorney, spun up a franchise document. We don't we don't franchise anymore. They're all company owned today. Right. In the early days, that was a way that we could grow rapidly. So we were opening our own stores, we were franchising out all over the West, even began to get into Texas, then eventually the East Coast. So lots of celebrities buying our product, ended up um uh, just high growth, chasing, chasing our dreams, you know, good stores, bad stores, messy business, bunch of 20-something-year-olds yep. trying to build a a business, uh, yes, a retail chain, from with no knowledge.
0: <laughs> yes. Now you end up getting a really uh, neat opportunity on Richard Branson's show, The Rebel Billionaire.
1: So Richard Branson wanted to have a show like The Apprentice. This is in two thousand four, uh, like Trump's Apprentice.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, but he didn't want apprentices; he wanted entrepreneurs business owners like me competing for the biggest reality TV show prize in history. We didn't even know what it was, but anyway, I got recruited to be on the show, 16 contestants, you know, um, travel around the world, new country, every episode on Richard's airline. And uh, then we do, you know, we, we, we land in Africa. Hey, you have 48 hours, you know, two teams to come up with some, uh, you know, economic viability plan for this village. Uh, work on that together, present it to the leaders. And then, then we're going to go jump off a cliff together because I'm Richard Branson. I like to do adventurous stuff. And and somebody's getting left behind because you know they're the weakest link or whatever. So uh, episode after episode, I barely hung on and ended up winning. I was made uh, president of Virgin Worldwide for a, a period of time. Yeah, uh, Got to travel around the world meeting Richard's CEOs. He invested a million dollars into my business as part of the prize. Oh. Um, which sound, you know, when you get a check for a million dollars on TV, all of your neighbors and friends think you're, you know, <laughs> yeah. the truth is my little business that had all these stores, some good, some bad, ugly, had 2 million, had racked up 2 million in debt. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you can't believe everything you see on TV. If, you know, I just had to take that check and give it to my CFO and, you know, pay off a little bit of debt and keep going. And, and it was ugly. And we, we, at the same time we're raising venture capital we raised venture capital on all of that momentum their big idea was hey let's bankrupt this business yeah. and start over mm-hmm. with fewer stores no franchises you know make it really clean and 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 build it properly with the right funding and you know extremely humiliating to be you know the golden boy of Richard Branson one minute go through a very public because the media loves that kind of stuff chapter right. 11 bankruptcy reorg and, and manage the company, you know, I have to go through and close all these, not all, but many of the stores I opened and right. cut up their fixtures with a, with a skill saw to get them out in the dumpster. And I mean, it's, you know, when you get the opportunity to manage a company through something like that, I call it my MBA in a box.
0: Yeah, Like
1: then you see what contracts really mean. And then you mm. see what leases, how leases really play out. Yeah. Uh, and you see all of the ugliness and it's, and it's terrifying and and difficult yet we're in a reorganization, you're still operating. And so I've got all these employees, you know, the ones we're keeping and the, that need, that need to be motivated and paid and bonus. And, you know, even as I'm arguing with the courts about what we owe to who and getting accused of, and so like, it's those, I mean, you know, I would never do it again. I wouldn't wish it on, you know, anyone at the same time I learned things in that, you know, year of reorganization that you can only learn uh, through challenges like that, not just in business, of course, that right. too, but also personally, you know, personal relationships, your, your marriage. Um, I was married along the way, you know, I'm, I'm married today and thankfully, but yeah. um, you know, just everything that you go through. And so, you know, it's definitely made me a stronger, savvier person through it.
0: Yeah. That's good. Now, as you're doing that, so you, you talk about it, you're you're on the show competing to win. You're also filing a bankruptcy. You guys have been doing research and development on this new product. Uh, and so talk about what goes into that. I mean, that was years and years and years of research and development before you released it. And then years of uh, fine tuning it after release.
1: Yeah. So sectionals came along around that same time. It's a couch that can be arranged and rearranged infinitely covered and recovered infinitely. And it's the only washable, changeable, infinitely modular couch for sale still today. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of patents on it. There's a lot of, listen, sectional has been around a long time, but our idea was how do you make it even more flexible and lock together so it doesn't slide apart when you sit on it too fast, like most sectionals do. Yeah. And machine washable. Anyway, we solved all those problems, but it took us years. We 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 had the idea. We built the first prototypes, and I think one of the mo- and and by the way, it's the reason that today LoveSack is, you know, approaching, you know, not too far away, half a billion dollars in annual sales. Yeah. Eighty uh, percent plus of that is sectionals, and we will invent other things as well. But. Um, you know, and we're a public company listed on NASDAQ, we've come a long way, but back yeah. in those days, Saxons was just a, and, and it came from observing, right? We had a couch in the corner of our stores. It was there to look pretty and make, look good next to the sacks down front of the TV. Yeah. And people would ask about this couch and we couldn't sell it because it's too big, too awkward to deliver, you know, couch, the couch business has all kinds of problems. Right. Um, uh, shipping, delivery, color stocking. You know, how do you stay in stock of something so large and in, in many color, all these things? Yeah. And so we we tried to solve all those problems and, and and it took us many years to refine. We we put the first prototypes in our stores, we started selling them. You know, they they were blocky and, and a bit uncomfortable. And you know, it took us a long time to refine the product and also refine our brand, this college beanbag store, to something that could sell a couch priced like pottery barn or restoration hardware yes. against those competitors years and years of of evolution and tweaking and growing and becoming sophisticated. But I think one of the, one of the key lessons from developing that product was the fact that when we first took our initial prototypes, because if you understand sectionals are kind of like giant Legos that you can connect together. They're really cool. And they don't need any tools. We have patents on all this stuff. But when we first took our initial prototypes made out of two by fours and plywood, to like a proper furniture company that could help us build them with springs and everything needed we left our prototypes and drawings with them and we said hey you know make these things and it's just a seat and a side and with these two pieces you can you know uh arrange and rearrange anything and that's what's so special but we came back in two weeks to look at the prototypes they would built and And they showed me this little sectional, like the kind we're all familiar with, a corner piece, a middle piece and an ottoman. And they even had a slip cover that, you know, looked like a slip cover, like a sheet draped over them. And and I was like, well, where's he's like, oh, you're going to sell these in your stores. It's going to be great. We had a bunch of love sex stores by then. And I said, no, no, no. Where's the thing that we left you? And he said, oh, that won't work. You know, I've been making furniture for 40 years. Like my daddy made furniture for 40 years before that that That's too blocky, It won't be comfortable. It won't hold together. It won't be, you know I said, well, that's what we paid you for. right? So we were really frustrated. We took the same samples to another furniture maker and paid him money to prototype these. And you know what that guy did? Two Makes weeks it. later? Same thing. Made us a little sectional that uh, you know, like a, with a corner piece and a middle piece. I said, yeah. well, we're I'm like losing my mind. like I can't even like, were you guys talking to each other? Okay. And he said, look, I've been making furniture my whole life. That won't work. Listen, Love Sack is the fastest growing furniture retailer in the United States right now. It has right. been for a lot of years. Yeah. And by the way, it will probably continue to be for a lot of years to come. Yeah. And, and, and but and, and so what's the point? The point is these experts that were twice my age and had generational furniture knowledge were too smart for their own good. We were just dumb enough. And didn't know anything about couches that well why couldn't it be done this way yes and and i've tried never to lose that i've tried to stay dumb naive right you know like I, like i hate the answer well that's that's the way it's done or that's the way like that's not going to work well why not like unless you can give me a real answer to that question let's just try and by the way it happened again more recently with a product that we haven't even launched yet. I can't tell you about yep. where I ended up in a screaming match with, with PhD level engineers who were telling me it's just physics. It can't be done. And, and then we went and did it. And so we've got something really cool coming out and, I'm just, and it's just been a huge life lesson in, in our evolution.
0: Well, I, I want to highlight that. Cause I think that's such an important point. Sometimes When you know the industry, the creativity can lack, right? When you're a little bit, to your point, naive enough, like, well, yeah, it's always been done that way, but I'm sure it could be adjusted. Like, why wouldn't we try it? Uh, That's when true, you know, kind of new ideas can enter into the space. It's very hard for someone that's been set in our ways. We've done it this way 40 years to be willing to open up the, uh, you know, Pandora's box and see what else could be in there.
1: Yeah. Disruption is, you know, such a buzzword these days, like, oh, disruptive this, yeah. disruptive that. And, and it's overused. But at the same time, there are plenty of organizations, companies, ideas disrupting the way things have been done. Yeah. And if you look at most of those, it's happening by people who were not of that industry necessarily. It's happening by younger people often who Are just dumb enough to say, why not? Yeah. And so it's very tricky. And by the way, like if you look at my team of executives, they're awesome. They have deep experience in their realms, you know, and they're they're frankly, you know, smarter than me in in every one of their capacities. Um I don't think that it's to discount experience. I seek experience as we hire. The key roles but both have value yes and that's the part we missed when we were in our 20s just rolling out retail stores like a bunch of idiots there are people who know how to do that really yeah. well and instead you know so so it's this is why by the way being an entrepreneur is so hard is because you have to be brash enough to believe you can do anything mm. you can run harder go longer you know just like we did in the tractor days and, and, and invent a couch that no one's ever seen before because that's your brashness. You have to be humble enough to seek out experts at, in the right places. The experts yes. who were telling me it couldn't be done were the wrong experts. They were actually the right experts to make my prototypes. They just wouldn't do it. Yes. And eventually I had to find other ones who would. So there's a place for expertise and there's a place for naivety. And if you can be the judge of that and harness both, then you will win if you can't you will fail just like we did the first time around at retail we failed for our naivety for the naivety we had in thinking we could build a retail chain with almost no real help
0: yeah no that's so good i love that thank you for sharing that That that's a good tidbit rewind that and listen to that again now as the business is progressing you said hey we're fastest growing. And you guys are recognized as one of the best, you know, furniture companies. And then in 2018, you decide to go public. That's a big decision. Um, What kind of led to that and what was the ultimate catalyst for making that decision?
1: Yeah. Look, going public is another one of these things that's like venerated and oh my gosh, like, like all it really is, is another way to finance your company. Right. I had been through uh, parental loans angel loans credit cards you know uh obviously proper angel rounds into venture capital back in 2005-6 uh private equity funding in 2009 and on the end of the road you either get bought by another private equity company even bigger or you go public yeah to get the money you need to grow to that next level because Product-based businesses and look, there's digital businesses that require very, a lot less capital investment, but product-based businesses suck in a lot of cash. Now they can be huge and they can, and they're also a lot of fun because people own your products and you have a brand out there, yeah. but they can take a lot of money to get off the ground. And, and it took me 20 years of funding yeah. to get this one. And look, we should have made it sooner. I should have been smarter, whatever, but um my point is for us it was just the next logical step it it was too early we were too small really to go public classically but we did anyway and thankfully we've had a very good run and we've grown into that you know i it's it's not something to be aspired to i think what you like what you want to aspire to is just building a great organization if you have a great organization it will be valuable to someone you'll be able to grow it, make money, sell it someday in any form. Going public is just selling your company. I'm selling it to a thousand people instead of to one person. Yes. And, and by the way, it's a great outcome for certain situations as well, because now I don't have a private equity boss. Yep. You know, I'm the CEO and I have a thousand bosses, but it's not, you know, so you know it's just another step and it's been a good one. And it's and it's also brought LoveSack a lot of attention as well so it's been fun
0: i love it well sean i appreciate your story and just sharing all the you know pivotal moments right i mean you think back to the first one you created for pure enjoyment that people just seeing it as you're utilizing it then once again, the trip to Taiwan, which allows you to learn different languages, which allows you to be uh, kind of a ninja negotiating <laughs> when, when maybe they didn't know it. And then obviously everything that's transpired since. I know you have big news coming out this fall. Once again, can't share that yet. However, I'm going to reach back out to you in maybe a month or two uh, once that news is released and maybe we can uh, chat again for a little bit, talk about that and uh, get a little bit more publicity around it. Love to, thanks. Awesome. Well, thanks so much again for being on
1: today, Sean. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Who Knew in the Moment, the podcast. I love Sean's story and how it just started with a random idea sitting on the couch uh, and then turned into a object to help friends and then has now turned into a publicly traded company and one of the fastest growing um, brands in the industry. Thanks so much for tuning in, like, share, and I hope you had some great takeaways about how to change your mindset to be able to accomplish what you want.